I'm Bob Schieffer. And I'm Andrew Schwartz. And these are conversations about the news. We're in the midst of a communications revolution. We have access to more information than any people in history. But are we more informed or just overwhelmed by so much information we can't process it? Our podcast is a collaboration of the Bob Schieffer College of Communication at TCU and CSIS in Washington. In this first year of Donald Trump's presidency, we're talking to the reporters who are covering the president the closest, the White House Press Corps. Joining us today is John Carl. He's in New York City covering Donald Trump. Uh, John, of course, is the chief White House correspondent for ABC. He's also the host, I should add, of a great podcast called ABC's Powerhouse Politics. He began his career, worked at places like the New York Post, the New Republic. He came to uh, CNN, worked there for eight years where we were competitors. I was covering the Hill at the time. In 2003, he uh, joined ABC as their senior foreign affairs correspondent. He since covered uh, one of the few people, and that few, I have to say, includes me, who has covered all four of the major beats in Washington, the State Department, the uh, Pentagon, the White House, and Capitol Hill. He's reported from over 30 countries worldwide. He's won recognition and numerous awards. Uh, uh, Congratulations, John, on all that's going on uh, in your life these days, and uh, we really want to thank you. So let's just start out by talking about Donald Trump. He's at the U.N. That's where you are. What about this speech that he made uh, about Rocket Man and so forth? Well, thank you, Bob. Well, first of all, just the image of Donald Trump there by that green marble that he had ridiculed many years ago as being cheap. Uh, but there before uh, the United Nations, an organization which just last year he had declared as no friend to America. You know, one of really somebody who came into the White House as the harshest critic we've ever had uh, to become president. I mean, certainly you know Reagan and 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 uh, and George W. Bush both came in as critics of 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 the United Nations, but Donald Trump was somebody that actually went so far as to suggest that the UN is you know essentially an adversary of the United States. And what struck me as he entered that hall and started that speech was how relatively optimistic he was and positive uh, towards the people in that room, towards that organization. I, you know, for, for the first 10 or 15 minutes of that speech, I was wondering who exactly I was watching. And then, of course, he got to the, um, <laughs> he got to the section on North Korea. And it, it's, it's in many ways, uh, up until that point, and, and in many parts of that speech were, were quite conventional. Uh, but to see the president of the United States come out and talk about uh, annihilating an entire country uh, was really something else. What I'm hearing you say is exactly uh, what your competitor, the New York Times, Glenn Thrush, was talking about when I asked him, uh, does what Trump say or do today, is that any way, in any way uh, predictive of what he might do tomorrow? And he said, no, absolutely not. He said, we talk about the 24-7 news cycle. He said, in Donald Trump's mind, it's a 15-minute news cycle, and what he says in the first 15 minutes may have nothing to do with what he may say in the second, third, or fourth uh, 15 minutes of, of his 
uh, news cycle. I, too, uh, found it very stunning. What was the reaction in the hall? Well, you actually had some, you heard audible gasps. I mean, you heard some people quite quite shocked by it. Um, of course, that is a hall that you don't get much reaction. These are, you know, delegations from 189 different countries, as you all well know. You've been up to many of these, uh, Bob. It's, uh, you know, for the most part, they sit silently, but you could, you could, you could see the shock <laughs> from, from, from some of those delegations. The North Koreans, of course, had, had walked out uh, as the president came into the hall. Uh, so they weren't, they weren't there aside from one, you know, one lone North Korean North note taker, but it, it was definitely a, it was definitely a shocking moment. I think made more so by the fact that he had built up to it in a, in a, in a quite positive way towards the international community, towards the UN, the kind of talk you don't normally hear from Donald Trump. But I, I have to say North Korea, I, I've, I've covered this, this issue now for, you know, well over a, a decade, this issue of their, their, their kind of development of both a missile program that's increasingly gotten more sophisticated and a nuclear program. And I've watched how the Bush administration dealt with it, uh, Colin Powell and then Condoleezza Rice. You know, they did those five-party talks. They had a very, you know, they were, they were, they were absolutely adamant they would not talk to North Korea one-on-one. You saw a, a different approach under President Obama, both administrations, with people with tremendous experience, uh, foreign policy experience, China, a key component of it. These were two very different administrations on foreign policy, but both saw North Korea as as a as one of the major problems facing the United States. Both came in with extremely experienced uh, and well respected and highly regarded foreign policy team, and look what happened. I mean, it's been an abject failure. So, you know, for for all the the you know, alarm about Donald Trump and his and his rhetoric on this and his approach to this. I mean, one thing you have to say is that the, the policy so far by the uh, by, 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 by the so-called experts uh, in two different parties has been an abject failure for well over a decade. Well, I'll have to say one thing. Bibi Netanyahu loved it. He gave it a, a, a rave review, and that's probably uh, not to be unexpected, as it were. Uh, what about Amongst our, our traditional allies, our, our NATO partners and, and uh, folks of that uh, stripe, how did it go over there? Uh, not particularly well, although the, the, there hasn't been loud condemnation on, the, uh, on, on his comments on North Korea. It's been rather muted. What you do see, though, Bob, is uh, real concern by our allies in Europe about what the president said on Iran and about his hint that he would tear up the Iran nuclear deal. This was a deal, of course, that was negotiated with our European allies under President Obama, uh, a, a deal where Iran got many of the benefits up front, particularly the benefits they were able to get from the United States in terms of the unfreezing of assets. And the, uh, the, the idea that the United States would walk away from the deal now is something that is of, of great concern uh, to, our, to our European allies. What's your sense? Is it your sense that we are going to walk away from it? I, I don't think that's a given. Uh, so the president just said that he has made up his mind, but of course he didn't tell us <laughs> what his decision was. I, I think that, that they understand that, because the president's talked about it himself, I talked about it during the campaign, that you know one reason why he felt that this deal was such a bad deal was that the Iranians got so much up front. 
So if the United States walks away from this deal now, it's not like Iran returns the assets that they got, you know, at the time of, of, of signing the deal. Uh, what does it mean? It means the U.S. can go and reimpose sanctions that had been lifted. How much does that really matter to Iran? The reason why the sanctions on Iran were so effective and forced them to the table is because it was Europe was was involved. And that, you know, the Europeans have been the Iranians' primary trading partners, not the United States. I mean, what 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 have we done? Pistachios and, and caviar? I mean, it, it's it's not it's simply not, you know, a, a major part of the Iranian economy. I think that there's a real chance that what the president does is he decides not to walk away, uh, but to tighten other sanctions that were not part of the uh, the Iran nuclear deal because he can cite evidence that Iran continues to support terrorism. That was not part of the Iran nuclear deal. He can cite that Iran continues to develop its uh, ballistic missile program. Again, not part of the nuclear deal. Um, because if he walks away, then Iran at that point, if the deal's done, Iran can kick out the nuclear inspectors. Iran can ramp up its enrichment program again. And I think, I think that the president himself understands that. I think his national security team understands that. So I, I don't know what they're going to do, but I don't think it's a given that he's going to walk away. I think he can talk about being really tough on them, particularly for the support of terrorism, uh, but not rip the deal up. Let me bring in Andrew Schwartz now, John. Thanks, Bob. John, it's great to uh, have you with us. Thanks for being on the podcast. Um, I want to ask you about the speech in terms of, you know, Trump decided on his own axis of evil. He has North Korea, Iran, and Venezuela, as opposed to George W. Bush's axis of evil, which, of course, included Iraq. What was striking to me, and I want to know your thoughts on this, is uh, we heard basically nothing about Russia. And we heard basically nothing about China. In particular, we heard uh, just a passing reference to Russia's intervention in Ukraine, and we heard a passing reference about China's uh, buildup in the South China Sea. What's the buzz up there about that? Yeah, actually, uh, the Ukraine reference—he didn't even use the word Russia. Uh, he, he, you know. Um, <laughs> so, you know, Vladimir Putin could have potentially applauded that line and thinking that it that, that that he was talking about the oppression of ethnic Russians in in Ukraine. Uh, I, I thought it was striking, particularly uh, the, the China piece of it, uh, and maybe that's uh, maybe that's a sign that Steve Bannon truly has left the White House. <laughs> uh, in, in in the Bannon worldview, China is 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 central. China is the is 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 the key adversary, both economic and down the road militarily, to the United States, and containing China and reversing. China's what 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 Bannon sees as their ascension, particularly in the area of uh, particularly trade, is 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 first and foremost. So to hear the president speak for forty two minutes before the United Nations and not get into China, um, you know that, that 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 did surprise me. He also used the term sovereignty twenty one times. Uh, yes. when Barack Obama spoke, he used it one time. By the way, Andrew, that doesn't really strike me as a Trump word, does it? I mean, no. I. I've 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 known him and and covered him on and off since I was at the New York Post, uh, I, you know, a long long time ago, <laughs> and and I just I I don't think I've ever heard Donald Trump talk about sovereignty before. I I I got the sense that might have been the influence of his primary speechwriter, uh, Stephen Miller. But it is an interesting word at the United Nations, where this is where countries come together. Not that they give up their sovereignty, but they come together and 
and, and the idea anyway, the idea almost never fully realized is, you know, the international community working in concert and the, and the countries that cite sovereignty at the UN are often those that are accused of human rights violations or accused of violating the rights of their citizens. And the say, that's a question, that's a domestic affair, that's our sovereignty. So it was interesting to see the American president use that phrase. But the one thing he got applause for was when he said, it's America first for us and it should be for every country here, your country first. That was an actual applause. Like I said, we don't get applause very often in that forum. And he actually got applause for that. I, I, I thought that was interesting. Uh, well, we've been talking about Russia. Let's uh, shift to uh, what's going on back in Washington here. Uh, the Mueller investigation, picking the lock on uh, Paul Manafort's uh, house, uh, breaking in. The FBI did, uh, finding documents. Uh, I mean, this is something like uh, out of a movie here, John. It also sounds very, very serious, especially, I would say, for Paul Manafort. It, it sure does. And in talking to folks on the committees that are that are also investigating the Senate and House uh, intelligence committees, judiciary committees, I've, I've, I've trying to get a sense of where those investigations are in addition to the Mueller investigation. And the one thing that everybody agrees with, Democrat, Republican, um, is that Paul Manafort's in, in, in real jeopardy. And what's interesting is it may have, it appears to have absolutely nothing to do with what happened during the campaign and Russian meddling, but but with, you know, Manafort's uh, own financial dealings. So, but but the, the, the there is uh, clearly, and and as the as the piece you're talking about reported, he w- he's apparently been warned by Mueller's people that an indictment is coming, and an indictment is coming soon. Do you think that where we are is that they are presenting Mr. Manafort? Uh, with two ways to continue his life. One is if he cooperates with them, uh, it might be a little easier. And the other, if he doesn't, uh, he's facing some very serious charges here. My sense is that he is facing very serious charges, period. And, you know, that there's not... I I hear more talk of trying to get Michael Flynn uh, uh, to to cooperate and, and suggesting that... You know, because Flynn potentially faces legal jeopardy over, you know, whether or not he told the truth uh, to FBI investigators and in, early on in all this, whether or not he told the truth in his uh, filings, you know, the, what uh, his, his foreign agent filings, his disclosure filings when he got into the White House, you know, p- potentially potentially not as serious as what they're looking at uh, with, with Manafort. But certainly if you're... The Trump White House, if you're you've got to be very you've got to be very nervous about what Paul Manafort might be willing to do or willing to say if he is offered such a deal. I must say uh, when people and and you'll know what I'm talking about here, John, and I'm sure you've experienced the same thing when people always ask me, what is my favorite beat? And they expect you to say the White House. But I generally say Capitol Hill because at the White House, I always say, Everybody works for the same person. When you get up on Capitol Hill, they're all independent contractors, and that's how you get news. But this is the first White House where (laughs) that doesn't necessarily hold true because we're seeing all these factions in the White House. It's like there are independent contractors within the White House. I've never seen a White House where so many people, and maybe tell me if I'm wrong, talk to the press, uh, talk to uh, 
other outlets to make sure their side of it gets uh, known. And when I saw this story that popped up the other day, where some people in the White House are worried about maybe some of their colleagues wearing a wire, I thought, man, this is not any White House that I've ever known about. And I came here in 1969. No, I mean, you're exactly right. And, and not only willing to talk to get their side out, but but willing to just go out and trash their colleagues, trash the people that they're sitting next to in those senior you know, uh, the, the senior senior meetings at the White House. I mean, it's it's just it, it, Bob. It makes it a it's made it a heck of a beat to cover. I mean, you know, we we you can learn much more uh, in this White House about the inner dealings uh, than than you know you the, the kind of stuff that you'd have to wait you know a couple years out to see what what Woodward was going to get in his book, right? Or, I mean, when you think back to like you think back to the first Bush administration. And there'd be this slight little criticism that would come out of, you know, Jack Kemp over at Housing and Urban Development um, or, you know, so, you know, a little bit of a back and forth maybe with budget director Darman and chief of staff Sununu, but also incredibly minor uh, in, in comparison. You have people in this White House who have absolutely despised each other, people that would be at any given point sitting in a meeting in the Roosevelt Room together with the president. And then uh, we had on top of this, this, I mean, you couldn't, you wouldn't write this in a bad novel because no one would believe it, but uh, two veteran top flight criminal lawyers sitting Unbelievable. on the sidewalk at a sidewalk cafe next door to the New York Times uh, discussing all of this. And uh, uh, I mean, I Loud, remember- loudly. And I remember John Dowd when he was uh, uh, John Mitchell's lawyer way back there. And, and he's been a lawyer for a lot of people since then. And then you have Ty Cobb, who is a lawyer of, of, of standing. I don't – I think – did I really dream that or did that happen? Well, if you were writing the screenplay, Bob, they would tell you, come on. I mean, get rid of that. That is just insane. I mean, it's 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 BLT who you really cannot go into that restaurant on any given uh, lunch during the week and not find at least a handful of reporters having lunch with 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 somebody. I mean, that is the swamp. That is the swamp. And you know, and and for those of us who might not have quite the the expense account to go there all that often, you, you at least you're walking by there because to get anywhere, I mean, it's right. It's it's two blocks from the White House. It's 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 right as you point out. It's right down the the, the street from the. Uh, from the New York Times. But how about Mark Kasowitz, uh, the president's other lawyer, engaging in late night, you know, email rampage, you know, uh, diatribes with a, with with an unknown troll. I mean, somebody sends him an email criticizing him and he's launching into these email, uh, this email tirade back. And these are the president's attorneys in a very serious case. It's 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 amazing. It's amazing. Well, I tell you, this uh, Twitter business, and I'm sure it's it's great and all of that. But I mean, I, it may there may be something contagious about it because uh, you're talking about the president's lawyer. How about the uh, secretary of the treasury's wife uh, getting into an argument uh, on email with someone that she has absolutely no knowledge of? Uh, I, I just. I just find all of this. You know, I have a friend, and you may know her, uh, John uh, Jane Hickok. Uh, you remember Jim Hoagland that used to work for the Washington right. Post? She's a novelist. She tells me that she believes that the Internet is actually the devil. 
She she points out to me that he did he didn't promise he, he was coming back wearing horns and a tail and carrying a pitchfork. He might assume a different disguise. She thinks he's disguised himself as the iPhone. Uh, so maybe that's what the answer to all of this is. It certainly makes as much sense. <laughs> is any of the other explanations that oh, we've boy. Well, well do, you, do you remember uh, back during the Scaramucci era? You, you remember that, right? Yeah, right, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so, so, uh, uh, Scaramucci era. Do, do, you, do you remember uh, somebody sent Scaramucci an email from, you know, an, an, e, some, an email address that was something like reintzprebus at gmail.com or something like that, but, it, you know, just looking like it was Reintz. And, Scaramucci engaged and wrote this long thing back to Reince and, and, and it was just somebody pretending, you know, and then just throw it. I mean, it's it's really quick, quick on the draw. This this crowd. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, John, let me ask you about this. I mean, everybody knows you're one of the coolest guys in Washington. You know, hey, like well, everybody likes you. In addition to all the good things Bob said at the top of the uh, of the podcast, you're a really likable guy. How do you get along with this crowd and how do you get along with the president? Um, well, I thank you, by the way. I don't know if that's true, but thank you very much. Um, but I, I, as a reporter for the New York Post, if you ever had kind of a slow news day, there was one way you could try to shake the tree a little bit. You'd call Donald Trump and say, you know, what's going on? <laughs> right. Right. So so I, 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 I did get to know him a, a little bit back then in the uh, in the early 90s. As a matter of fact, there was a uh, when, when Michael Jackson married Lisa Marie Presley. OK, this was the greatest pop marriage in the, you know, the history of 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 mankind. They started their honeymoon at Trump Tower, where Michael had a place. And I was I was. You know, I was a city hall reporter, but the New York Post, you know, you're always, you know, this was like an all-consuming event. And and just as on a whim, I called up, I called up Trump and I said, hey, do, why don't we do a story about why the most famous couple in the world would decide to kick off their honeymoon at Trump Tower? And he actually liked the idea. Um, I bet he did. Uh, yeah, yeah. So he brought me down and showed me all around, introduced me to Michael's bodyguards, explained to me all that. Um, but so, so I've, I've, you know, had known him <clears throat> for a while. Now there were many times during the campaign that he got very irritated with me and, you know, during, during interviews. But the one thing that, uh, I think, um, he will never forget because he reminds me every time I, I see him is that back when he first started flirting with running, I did an interview with him actually at the uh, the old post office where the Trump Hotel is now. It was just a construction site for him. He, he'd gotten the contract and they had just begun. And I thought it was an interesting thing that the GSA was going to turn over this like jewel of Washington on Pennsylvania Avenue to, to Donald Trump. And I wanted to know what his plans were. But he was also flirting with running. So I I met him down there. We, we talked about the hotel and I asked him some questions about about running for president. And he and he made some news in the comments because he was incredibly harsh in criticizing Jeb Bush, who was also only kind of a potential candidate at that point. And it made a little bit of news. But I got some criticism, Bob, um, from some of our colleagues out there. It was like, why is anybody paying any attention to Donald Trump? He's never going to run. This is just a game for him. We shouldn't engage it. Why are you paying any attention? Well, Trump remembered that and he saw that and he remembered that I, you know, I had talked to him early on and, 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 and I had at you know, taken seriously enough the idea of him running that I was asking him these questions and making it making it part of the interview. But it's been intense, and and you know, it's 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 very odd. I talked to you about this, Bob, when I saw you over, over the weekend working in a White House where the president has defined us 
and what we do as being um, an, you know, enemies of the people, uh, being the opposition party, being people that want to harm America. And it's been one of the really troubling parts of the job because I don't want to fight them on that. I don't want to be the – I want to report on what they're doing. I don't want to be in a place where it's them against us. I mean, I'm not there to be part of the process. I'm there to report on the process. And it's and it's been a tough balance. It's a very important uh, observation as well. And it, as you as you mentioned, you and I uh, have talked about this. And I think it's very important for us to stress that we are not the opposition party. We are are the media. Uh, we're the journalists. Uh, our job is not to to argue with the people who make the news. Our job is not to run the campaigns or to run the government. Our job is to ask questions and keep asking until we get answers. Uh, I I always sum up the mission, uh, our mission uh, in this way. The politicians are there to deliver a message. We are there to check it out and see if it's true and report on the impact it is going to have uh, on the governed. so I'm glad you brought that up because, you know, we can laugh about this. We can uh, talk about the uh, controversies and all of that. Journalism, free press, is as crucial to our democracy uh, as the right to vote. And uh, you can't have a democracy as we know it unless you have an informed electorate. So uh, not to be here to give a commercial for journalism, but I think it's very important that we that we understand that as reporters and do our best to help others outside the pre, uh, outside our profession understand that. That's actually why we started this podcast. Yeah. So how do you feel about it? I mean, have you ever in your wildest dreams ever thought that you would uh, want to do something rather than what you're doing right now? I mean, not really, Bob. I mean, I, this I, I don't know what I don't know what I would do uh, if 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 I wasn't part of this and witnessing all of this, you know, maybe, maybe go out and study history somewhere or something. But I, I, you know, being, being at the, in in the the front lines, watching history unfold and through the extraordinary period that we have lived through here, this, I mean, the last eight months in in this white house, uh, you know, being on and off, I've, I've been in that building covering presidents back to, uh, back to, Bill Clinton. I mean, this is an, just an entirely different world, um, and it's a tremendous opportunity um, to, as you said, uh, you know, go in there and report what is happening. And as a reporter, you relish the story that is unpredictable. You relish the story where you don't know what the end is, and and that's exactly what we've had here. So much of politics, as as you well know, runs a very predictable course. Um, and then you have your surprises and you have your, you know, people that emerge it would have been very hard to predict, for instance, that Barack Obama would have come and, and, and emerged the way he did. But so much of the of the debate runs a rather predictable course. This is a highly unpredictable White House. Well, that's great, John. And uh, I want to tell you how uh, how important I think it is for you to do what you're doing. And, and we we all appreciate what you're doing. And sometimes uh, the story that is the hardest to cover uh, turns out to be, you know, obviously the most important. And uh, you represent us all well at the White House. And uh, I hope 
I hope you'll just uh, keep doing what you're doing. It's it's a very important thing. Well, thank you very much, Bob. I've learned a lot from you, especially when I was working side by side with you uh, as as you know as competitors up on Capitol Hill. I always got a little nervous when when you showed up. So, <laughs> well, the same feeling. <laughs> thank you, thank you, <laughs> and, you and know, Andrew. Great to talk to you. Uh, competition is what makes the job fun, and I always used to say, you know, I was competing against uh, Tim Russert uh, when he was doing Meet the Press and. And uh, Tim was really, really good. But whenever I managed to scoop him, and it was not very often, I felt like I'd hit a home run off the best pitcher in the league. And that's more fun than just hitting a home run. And I know you feel that way. And uh, uh, that's that's kind of what makes this, uh, this job we have uh, so much fun. Uh, even though it does get to be a pain sometimes, and you have to watch work a lot on holidays, which I always yeah, exactly, to... exactly. And you get that call in the middle of the night, right, yep. Bob? Yep. <laughs> but in the end, uh, I can't think of a better way to spend uh, spend your time. Well, John, thanks so much. It was great to have you, and we really appreciate you doing it. For Andrew Schwartz, this is Bob Schieffer. Is it a physical attraction? Is it sexual satisfaction? Is it long life together? Going through all kinds of weather. Is it holding each other's hands? Making all kinds of plans? Never, never saying goodbye. Never, never making each other cry Love is all the above That's what love is Love is everything Underneath the sun That's what love is ah, All of the above Is it a walk in the park? Or is it kissing in the dark? Is it strolling in the rain? Is it joy? Or is it pain? If love really the answer, then what could be the question? Why do I feel this way? I look in the sky and I pray Love is all the above That's what love is Love is everything Underneath the sun That's what love is
I'm 